Well, good morning. I hope everybody feels well rested with that, that hour taken off. We're going to be in Galatians 4 if you want to turn there. And um, I just, if you're a guest this morning, I would love to meet you after service. But also, if you're not super familiar with our church and where things are, um, we have overflow out in the lobby and in this classroom over here uh, titled the Fellowship Hall. And your baby's crying does not bother us, but if it bothers you, feel free to, to take them in there. Because I know, like, when, when, when mine's acting a fool, like, nobody cares but me. But I'm like to hear and... and I, I, I need a break. So if you, if you don't want to miss any service and you feel like, you know, I need to stand up and step out for a moment, um, the, the service plays in the lobby and in the classroom over here. But let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. God, you're beautiful. You're so kind to us. God, thank you that morning by morning you're your mercies are made new. Lord, I, I pray that you would show us mercy today and that you would illuminate our eyes to your truth because we can't do any of this without you. God, speak through me, speak to us, and God, I pray that you would engage us in your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to continue in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, if you want to go ahead and and turn there, and we're in our series Captivated, and we know what captivates our hearts is going to be what we live for. So our desire is that our hearts would be captivated by Christ so that we would live for building his kingdom as well as living for his glory. I love, uh, I love old music. Some of you may not think this is old music, but I, I, it's old to me. Uh, Frank Sinatra. Or we'll call it golden or silver. Um, but there's one song in particular, everybody knows it, right? It's uh, I Did It My Way. And I Did It My Way captures the heart of, I think, American individualism, that American spirit. Uh, we, are, we are a passionately independent people. We, we all, in our own way, want to be trailblazers. We... We, we don't like being told what to do. We want to do things our way. We don't want to be micromanaged. But here's, here's the problem when it comes to life. Often our way is contrary to God's way. Amen? Paul, in our passage this morning, he's teaching us through allegory about the story of Abraham, the father of Israel, the father of our faith. And God promised Abraham that he would have a son through his wife, Sarah. Well, Abraham and Sarah started getting old. And they decided to take matters into their own hands through his servant, Hagar. He fathered a child. He, he decided not to wait on God. He decided to do it his way and not God's way. And here's the deal. I think a lot of times, like, Abraham knew what God's mission was, at least a part of it, that he would make Abraham a great nation. And 
Abraham was desiring to fulfill God's mission, just not God's way. He wanted to do it Abraham's way. When we, when we do this, when, we, when, when God doesn't act fast enough for us, when, when we act in this way, we, we bring sin into the mix and we take God out of the mix, don't we? The church in Galatia, they wanted to do it their way. They wanted to have righteousness their way. They, they wanted a, the other people's righteousness and other people's salvation to come their way. They wanted their culture, they wanted their customs, and they wanted their rules that they were comfortable with. And Paul this morning, he's going to show us in the text that salvation is by grace alone. And if, you, if, if you're not a part of that, if you're not a part of salvation by grace alone, you're not a part of the promise of God. So here's what's true. We are saved by faith in Jesus' work and God's promise, but not our work. So that's what tr what's true. So how do we apply this? What do we do with it? As we seek to build his kingdom, we must be sure that we're following him and doing it his way. It's pretty simple. We need to do it God's way. So let's, let's read our passage together. Galatians 4.21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you, do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These, these women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So he's saying present Jerusalem was in slavery to the law. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not... Uh, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you, <clears throat> cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time... He who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This is, there's a lot going on here, but he's saying, those among you that are teaching this Jesus plus... Put them out because they will not inherit what you inherit. Verse 31. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is a hard passage, amen? But we're going to do our best. So the, this passage, I'm going to just present it with one point this morning because I believe it has one point. And it's the allegory and the interpretation. In Christ, we are children of promise. 
Now, there's a couple applications, but that's, that's, the, that's the point. So in verse 21, Paul's coming after the Galatian church again. He's challenging their understanding of God and God's laws. He, he says this, Why in the world, this is the Cody interpretation, why in the world would you want to live under the law? Have you not read the thing? Have you, have you not read it? Paul's presenting the law with two understandings. And I think he's been doing this all the way through the book. The, the, the first understanding, the understanding that I'm advocating, is, the, is seeing it through the lens of grace and promise, not as the way that we can achieve righteousness. And the other, other, other understanding is law and works, that if you believe that you can achieve salvation by keeping the law, if you believe you're really going to be righteous by keeping the law and the customs, you're going to be exhausted. That's a slave master. And you're just going to keep on coming up short. So in verse 22, Paul points to Abraham and his two sons and their two different mothers. And in verse 23, he tells us how to interpret this thing. So let's look at verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise for Paul's original audience, they would have known this story really well. But we may not know it as well. So let's, let's take, we're going to take most of our time this morning to introduce ourselves to the stories, to the story and to the characters so that we can interpret what, what's even being talked about. So Abraham was the one who, you'll remember in Genesis 12, God calls out of the land of Ur. He calls him out of the land of darkness. To, to follow him. And he promises that I will make you a great nation. And God specifically later on promises that that's going to come through Sarah, his wife. There's, there's one point where God comes down with these two angels. You remember like right before he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, you, you, like the, the fire pillar, the, the wife turns into a pillar of salt. Like that's, that's one of the big stories in the Old Testament. Well, right before that, God shows up in body. I believe it's Jesus, but that's a side point. We can talk about that later. But he, he shows up, and um, he's got these two angels with him, and he, he tells Abraham that, hey, next year at this time, your wife's going to have a baby. Well, she's 89, and Sarah may have been eavesdropping. She was, because she starts laughing. So she's laughing at God because like, she's outside of childbearing age. And Abraham's wife, Sarah, she later in, in that next year as a 90-year-old has the child and his name is Isaac. So those, those are our, our three characters right now, Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Isaac was a child born out of the miraculous work of God from the barren woman, from, from, um, from Sarah, and you got to understand, being barren in the Old Testament, in their mind, they believed that to be a curse. From, from one believed to be cursed, God brought forth his promise. That'll preach, won't it? He brought a life. What seemed impossible to man was possible through the work of God. But here's the problem. Like, let's not even look at Abraham right now. Are we very good at waiting? 
We like speed. Abraham didn't like waiting either. Like he's a NASCAR fan. He wanted speed. He wanted it now. And to be fair to the dude, he had already waited like 25 years. So he, he had waited a long time. But before God gave him Isaac, Abraham fails miserably. Like we paint these guys in the Old Testament like they, they're these like rock stars of the faith. They even make it into the great cloud of witnesses in, in Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith. They, they're counted righteous by faith, not by works. Because if we looked at Abraham's works, Abraham was a screw up. Praise the Lord, because I am too. This was almost a beautiful story of trust, of God's promise, Abraham's resolve, but Abraham's trust faltered. And even as Abraham's trust was faltering, God comes to Abraham and reminds him of the promise. So before, so in, in chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, this is going to happen, stars of the sky, like this, this is coming. And by chapter 16, him and Sarah are, have already hatched the plan with Hagar. So here, here's the situation. We're about to read chapter 15 or a portion of it. Abraham is complaining to God. He's lost trust in, in the promise. He, he's, he's accusing God that God's not going to come through. Maybe accusing is not right, but definitely implying that God's promises can't be trusted. And there's this, I would hate to be this guy in the Bible, but Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham doesn't want Eleazar to get his stuff. So this is the, this is the, the, the conversation we read, and God's going to just kindly reaffirm the promise. So verse 15, uh, chap chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram been thinking about it for a minute. He had some things he wanted to tell to God in verse 2. He said, O oh Lord, what will you give me for I continue childless, and my heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, and Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and the, the number the stars. And if you're unable to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And look at verse six. And he believed the Lord. And what happened? And it was counted as righteousness. Righteousness is based on faith, not on works. So Abraham was struggling with God, and God encouraged him. But by the, the end of chapter 15, Abraham is just on a high. And then chapter 16, Abraham breaks trust with God. A Abraham didn't see it happen quick enough. Abraham didn't, didn't have enough evidence. Church, when, when, when you're so concerned about evidence and speed, 
That's when you're going to start, that's when we start getting into to, to bad territory. It wasn't fast enough and he didn't see the things that he wanted. So here's what happened. Sarah wanted speed too. So she decided and he decided how they were going to fulfill God's mission without God. Also, by the way, it's not super helpful to God when we try to fulfill his mission without him being a part of it. But that's... So she has her servant named Hagar, and she tells Abraham to take her servant and have an heir through, through her. And it's jacked up. The Bible's not advising us to do this. It's just telling us what happened. Like you, when you read the Bible, you have to decide, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? This, is, is it like a pill bottle where I read the back of it and, and it tells me how many times I should take it? Is it prescriptive what I should do or is it descriptive? Like this is not saying what Abraham did was right. As a matter of fact, it's going to show how he failed miserably. It's descriptive of what's going on. So instead of consulting God, they found in their mind what seemed to be a flawless plan. So they, they just did it their way. But here's the deal. Like, it seems ridiculous to us, but this was the logic of the day. It was the common practice in, in different parts of the world. This was actually the law. If, if your wife could not bear a child for you, you were to take one of her servants and again, this is not the Bible law. This is just the culture. So let's be clear on that. Uh, you were to take one of her servants and you would heir a child through that servant and then that would count as the heir of the household. So it's messed up, but that's what they did. So they, they, men's logic is just often painfully flawed and they chose the logic of men over the promise of God. And this is, this is why we need to be consulting God so that we operate in his way and that we as a church, we as individuals, don't try to accomplish God's will without God being a part of it, that we don't try to accomplish God's mission without even consulting God about it as, as a believer. So Hagar, the Egyptian slave, had a son, and, and this is what verse 23 is talking about. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, according to the will of man while the son of the free woman was born through a promise. Abraham and, and Sarah could not make Isaac just happen. God had to do that, right? Because they were too advanced in age. It, it, it was either going to be a work of God or it wasn't going to be a work at all. So who could have ever seen Sarah getting jealous? She does. I mean, that flawless plan went out the window real quick. And there ends up being a lot of tension in the tent. There's a lot of tension in the house between Sarah and, and Hagar. And when Sarah finally has a son, she wants to do away with Ishmael and Hagar. But again, this is just telling us what happened. God shows up and says, Abraham, it's going to be okay. I'm going to take care of Hagar and I'm going to take care of Ishmael and I'm going to make Ishmael a great nation as well. And he's going to live a long life and grow and, and, and grow into a, a great man. And I make this point because I think often we interpret Hagar and Ishmael as the bad guys because of cultural things that we've been told about them. But in the text, did they do anything wrong? No, they're only recipients of wrong actions. 
And the, the, the people who are wrong are Abraham and Sarah, the, the, the father of the faith. Uh, it seems that Hagar worshiped Yahweh because when she was in the wilderness, Yahweh showed up, spoke to her, and she obeyed. So that's all we can really go off of. And this, this happens in, in Genesis 21. So the bad guy in the story is Abraham and Sarah. They didn't want to wait on God, and they took matters into their own hands. But here's, this, is a, this is a key thing for us to remember. But despite their failures, God held up his end of the deal. Despite their failures, God held up his end of the covenant. This is grace. That's the difference between being under the, the law and being under the, 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 the promise. The law requires works. The promise requires God. If they were operating under the law, when, when, when they failed, God would have been just to say, I'm done with you, right? But they weren't operating based on, on law. They were operating based on promise. They were operating in grace. And grace is not dependent on us holding up our end of the deal. Grace is solely dependent on God holding up his end. I mean, so that weight that we carry from all the life and feeling like we're not enough, that's why Jesus says, come to me all you heavy laden, all you heavy burden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's because he has the shoulders that are wide enough to carry our debt. He's the one who's got the shoulders wide enough to, to make us righteous. We don't have that ourselves. So look at verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children from slavery, and she is Hagar. And now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. So he's, 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 he's making these contrasts. The Jerusalem of the day, the Jerusalem that was living under the law, Slavery. But those who believed in Christ, their, mo their mother wasn't the law. Their mother is, is, this, is the Jerusalem in heaven, the Jerusalem above. Paul is letting us know in this passage that, uh, that these things are to be interpreted allegorically and that these two mothers represent the two different covenants, the two different ways to approach the law. Hagar was from Egypt and she represents the covenant made at Mount Sinai. She was born into slavery. They were born into slavery when they received the law. And then when they were continuing to try to find righteousness in the law, they continued to be children of slavery instead of children of promise. While Sarah, she represents a child born out of promise. To interpret these things allegorically means that the points that Paul's making aren't in the, the points in Genesis. He's looking at these things figuratively. So allegories, illustration. And this week I was really, really struggling because here's the deal. Any illustration you carry out too far will break down. So let's not try to figure out Hagar and Ishmael. And like, just take the points he's making and go with them. 
So let's, let's look at the differences in the two boys. So Hagar's son is Ishmael, and he is conceived in slavery through the flesh, and he's conceived by human intervention and human calculation. Sarah's son, Isaac, on the other hand, was the result of God's promise. Isaac's birth was supernatural, and it was a result of divine intervention, not human intervention. Paul says that, that Hagar represents Mount Sinai, and that's, that's that connection to slavery. And Israel, again, was born in slavery, like those who went to, those, those who were Abraham's children were in Egypt for 400 years. So the ones that went to Mount Sinai, they were literally born into slavery. And that they went and received the law there. And slaves live under a master. The law wrongly applied is a master. And Israel in their present day was applying that law wrongly. And they were living as slaves to the law, not as children of promise. And they were rightfully children of promise, right? Because they were heirs of Abraham. But they were trusting in something other than God alone. They were trusting in their works of completing the law. The, the law wrongly applied says, I can make myself righteous. Like, and I think that this whole, I did it my way, this American, like, self, uh, I don't even have the word, this, this, I can do it on my own, like, doing it, we want to achieve our own righteousness, but through the law, that's just not possible. So instead, by faith, righteousness is counted to us. Paul, Paul says this about the present Israel, um, and that's talking about those who were living in present Israel, but also those who were coming into that church teaching that Jesus plus theology, Jesus plus all these good things that we have to do. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. The, the, the language of the Jews and the Jerusalem above heaven, they called it Mount Zion. Like, I don't know how many times you've read the Old Testament and you're like, what in the world is Mount Zion? Talking about heaven. Like, I was reading um, the Minor Prophets this week and I was like, every time I have to go, oh, heaven. So you have the, the contrast between heaven, Mount Zion, and Mount Sinai. The contrast between works and the contrast of promise. That's what's going on here. Sarah, in this story, she represents the promise of grace. The, the parallel is that God, with Sarah, brought a son out of an impossible situation based on a promise made earlier. This is the story of the gospel. God, God's gospel is based on a promise made earlier. Remember, we've talked about this, Genesis 3.15, right after the fall, what happens? That's the first promise of Jesus, that there is going to be one coming who will crush the head of the serpent. There's going to be one coming that will reverse the curse. Uh, there's nothing that humanity did to make God desire to save us. Romans 5 even talks about us being enemies to God. But God, being rich in mercy, sent his son to die for a people who have rejected him. That's grace. Salvation is not based out of man's works, but out of God's promise. The only work we had a hand in in our salvation was the sin that we provided. 
Everything else was God. Jesus did it. Jesus uh, came to us, we didn't go to him. Jesus fulfilled the law, we just broke the law. Jesus bled and died for us and took our, our, took our shame so that we could have eternal life. Jesus redeemed us to the Father by his blood. It's all Jesus. It's all God. God came to us. Jesus saw us. Jesus bought us. And Jesus brought us to the Father. It's all about Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about the work of the Holy Spirit in our salvation. And it's all based on his promise, not our ability to keep the law and to do good works. The Jerusalem which is from above is based on a promise. And entrance is free. And we enter by faith alone, and we get to live there for free. But if we decide we want to come to God by works, there is no admittance. It's just slavery. And we can't get to God on our own. So then Paul quotes from the Old Testament, and this seems like a weird quote. Like, it took me a minute. Took, took me lots of minutes on this one to, to find some, like, this is hard. Verse 27. For it's written, Rejoice, O barren one, for the one, <clears throat> the one who does not uh, bear breaks forth and cries aloud. You who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. This seems odd. So Paul, he's not in Genesis anymore. He jumps to, he jumps to Isaiah 54. So the, the, the situation in Isaiah is Israel's on the decline. They're spiritually bankrupt. They're spiritually barren. The, uh, God's bringing his punishment against them through other nations. But you'll remember Isaiah's where we get the promise of a redeemer. We get a promise of a Messiah. We get a promise of a child who's going to come from a virgin. And Isaiah, what, what Paul's doing is he's, he's, he's putting a bow on this and he's tying it all together. The promise is that there's going to be, through a barren one, there's going to come many children. Like Sarah was barren and she conceived and she only had one son. Like, I don't know if we realize this, but Abraham, besides Ishmael, only had one other child and that's Isaac. And through Isaac came a great nation. And Isaac only had one son. Through Isaac came a great nation. Israel was spiritually barren. But God intervened and brought Jesus through a virgin, as Isaiah prophesied earlier in the book. And this child of promise, Jesus brought spiritual life to both Jew and Gentile. And he's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And all the nations of the earth were blessed in Jesus. And we can be adopted as sons and as heirs to God because of Jesus' blood. So now let's look at 28. I mean, this is hard stuff we're dealing with this morning. This is, this is kind of technical stuff we're dealing with, but it's okay. We got it. We're, we're, we're plugging right along. So verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. 
So that's, that's what that church is dealing with. They're, they're getting persecuted by those outside the church and those who have came in the church with false doctrine. They're being persecuted by those operating in the flesh. Verse 30, But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit the, with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of, of the slave, but of the free woman. I think, I think there's two things going on here. First is, this makes us uncomfortable, but if there's someone in our body preaching false doctrine, leading other people astray, we as a church, this doesn't make us feel good. It's, it's a church word, though. It's called church discipline. We, we, we take the right doctrine to them. As individuals, we, take, we go in twos. They still, they still reject us. Then we take them for the, before the body, and if they still reject and they still will not repent, that means cast that, that false teaching aside, where to put them out? That doesn't feel good. But what's at stake? We saw it in Antioch, didn't we? In, in, in chapter 2, the whole body had, had been turned. Even Peter, the apostle Peter, and Barnabas. So these, these are not small things at stake. So... Verse 28 is referring to Ishmael and Isaac again. And this is, this is hard to, to even figure out what's going on. It, it's going back to Genesis eleven ten, And in the story, um, Ishmael is making fun, mocking, laughing, the text says in my translation, at, at, at Isaac. But Paul, I'm going to go with Paul's interpretation. Paul says in some way that he's persecuting him. And Hebrew scholars, of which I am not, make a claim that there's a nuance in the language that he's possibly being abusive in some way, being verbally abusive. But whatever went on, I don't, I don't, I don't understand it, but Paul says it's persecution, so we'll go with that. Whatever went on there, Sarah's livid. She's lit. And she goes to Abraham and says, put him out. We're, we're not doing this. Abraham's torn, he's broken, and the Lord comes to him and he's like, look, I'll take care of him. This is what we need to do. So, the connection is that Paul, Paul's making is Isaac was born out of the power of God's Spirit, and we too, if we're in Christ, we're born out of the Spirit of God. You know, John 3, 16. We're, we're given this new life, and when we come to faith, we're given a new life empowered by the Spirit. But Paul gets very pointed with his illustration, and it's, it's because they, brought, they try to bring life by their own hands. But in Christ, we can't create children of God, right? It has to be done by God. There, there's no salvation to be produced in our own effort. That's exactly what Paul's trying to convince the Galatian church of. And this, this, is, this is what we call legalism. This is what we call Jesus plus theology. And it, it says, I can do it or, or I can uh, perform to a level to achieve God's love. That, that's, that's, it's, it's effort or earning, maybe. So here's the question that we need to answer as a body together. Is God opposed to earning in any way? Or not earning, yes. Is he opposed to effort? And um, Dallas Willard, 
has a quote that I feel like fits this moment. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Grace, you know, does not just have to do with, uh, does not just have to do with forgiveness and sin alone. So in Christ, we are participating in, in building the kingdom of God. Building the kingdom of God takes effort on our part. We have to go do things. We have to go make disciples. We have to go share the gospel. We have to, we have to do some of the mundane things that we don't want to do. We, 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 we have to show up every morning and spend time with the Lord. We, we need to be in his word so that he'll be in us. It's, it's a lot of effort that goes into building the kingdom of God. But we are not earning God's love. We are not earning God's blessing. God gives that as a grace. God's, God's desire for us to work and, and live for him out of, it's, it's to flow out of love that we follow his commandments. It's to flow out of love, not earning, um, that, that, that we would live and we would work for him because we see Jesus and we see heaven as the greatest treasure. Abraham knew God's promises in Genesis 15, right? But in Genesis 16, instead of waiting, he decided to accomplish God's will on his own. He tried to bring about his mission on his own. He made a decision in the flesh. He looked at the situation and he knew he needed a son. And God said he would give him a son. He said, so I know how I'm going to make this happen. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They knew the promise of God, but they tried to figure out how to make it happen on their own, through their own mindset. I think this is a good moment for us to pause and to, to say, how do we try to engineer what only God can do? How do we try to accomplish in, in our flesh what can only be accomplished by God? Because this is what we see the Galatian church doing. I think there are two ways that we can evaluate whether or not we're trying to manufacture what only God can do. Whether or not we're doing it our way or God's way. The first is speed. And the second is evidence. We want things to happen on our timeline, which is always now, right? My timeline is now. And if you are wondering about me, like, man, Cody seems like a patient person. I'm not. My timeline's now. I want it to happen now. Speed. And we also want to see that thing happen. We want that evidence. We want that proof that God's in it. Abraham knew he was old. He knew that Sarah was old, and he wanted a baby now. The Galatians, they wanted control. They wanted to manufacture God's work. They, uh, then, then we'll know that we're really saved. They wanted speed, and they wanted evidence too. We have to be a people who are committed to doing things God's way, not our way. It's easier to depend on tradition and let's say, what's worked in the past. Then saying, God, how are you uniquely situating us to carry out your kingdom work here? Because it's, it's, it's easier to say, this is kind of the, the custom and culture of our church, and in the 90s it worked. In the 2000s it worked. Well, praise the Lord. But it's easier to depend on that than it is to say, God, 
What is this unique thing? What is this unique place? What is this unique calling you have on us now? Because you've put us here in this place at this specific moment to do a certain thing. And what is that thing? And look, as soon as we, we take God out of the equation, we're in a bind. God's given us the playbook. And we, we know what's required, but we want it faster and faster. And no matter what it is that God's calling us to, I think it looks like, I, I believe that the playbook, which is the Bible says, it looks like individuals, so not just me, me and you, reaching our neighbors and the, the nations, one person at a time, sharing the gospel and making disciples. That's what it looks like. So, you know what? I believe that God's calling our church to go do a work somewhere that's just not here whether it's in Africa or Asia or wherever it is, but we don't know where that is yet, right? We, we, we as a church have not came to that conclusion. We have not said the Lord's leading. As soon as he shows us, I say, we, we're full bore, let's go. But until that moment, what do we know? That we are to make disciples of our neighbors. So here's the question, church. Can we do what only God can do? Come on, let's say it together. No. We, we are to walk in the Spirit. But does it mean that we are to be inactive? Because, because we can't do only what God can do, does that mean that there should be no action on our parts? No. We are to walk in the Spirit. We are, we are as the body to look to the future and bathe everything in prayer. And, and not just lean on inactivity because God just hasn't told us yet. We may not know where we're going, but we should be a people willing to wait and the things that he's made clear follow out because it's been clear that he's called us to our neighbors. So that's why we're doing this Hoosier One right now. We don't know where God's taking us internationally, but we do know where God's taking us nationally and it's to our neighbors. And who's your one has three eyes. You'll see them on the screen. First, it's identify. Second, it's invest. And third, it's invite. So we're identifying, and that's what that green ball's for. We're asking you from now until Easter to write one name on there or write a family. And this person, maybe they're lost, maybe they're far from God, maybe, maybe they're just, uh, their family's believers, they're just not connected to a church. That's great. So identify that person. Green means go. Write it on, write it on the green ball. And then what we're, I'm going to ask you to do is invest in that person, that you're investing every day from now until Easter in prayer on this individual. Not just uh, prayer, but also like a text. Hey, I'm praying for you today. Hey, thinking about you today. But let's take it a little further. Let's invest in them by, by ha spending some time with them, real genuine time. Uh, we know from that, that Lifeway research poll that we saw last week that 82% of people who are not engaged in a church, who do not go to church, that were polled said, if someone they knew invited them, that they would go to church. Doesn't say that they'd become believers, it doesn't say anything, but that they would go to church, they would give it a try. And that same Lifeway research polls of evangelical Christians, only 2% say that they were that they had ever invited anyone to church. 82% say that they would come. 2% invite. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do. 
So identify, invest, and then invite them to Jesus. And if you're not comfortable inviting them to Jesus, I'm just going to say invite them to church. Because we know at church they're going to hear the story of the gospel of a God that loved them and gave his life up for them so that they could have salvation. So as we come into this, this, this time of prayer, that's what I'm going to ask you to do. If, if you don't know Christ, I'm going to ask that you would consider coming, coming to Christ today. That maybe you want to have a conversation. I'm going to be down front right here. I'd love to have a conversation about what it means to, to follow Jesus. But the Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. And all who call on his name will be saved. And the Lord's inviting you today. But also, for those of us who are here and know Christ, maybe you're struggling with effort versus earning. You want to earn Maybe that's something you need to repent of. But for everybody else, I know effort is what God's calling us to. And I'm going to ask you to participate in the effort of prayer. The effort of prayer investing in that one person and inviting them to either know Jesus or come to this place. So if you will, let's, let's stand together and let's pray.